So a couple things before we begin today. Um, we're having a technical problem with the slides. So there won't be any. <laughs> I mean, I've got them here. And of course, I made some like cool like animations today. But you won't see them. So if you see me look down and like laugh, like, <laughs> that's awesome. Sorry. Um, the other thing, um, and I never usually say this either, I'm interested to see where this sermon goes. Here's why. I preached this, this text about 11 years ago, and when that happens, before I look at that, I'll work through the text again, and then I'll look back at what I wrote, and I did that this week, and I thought, oh, okay, that wasn't that, wasn't that great <laughs> 11 years ago. And I've redone it about three times, up until like about 9.40 this morning. And so, because I don't use notes, it's all just jumbled in my head right now. So, whatever comes out, um, I ask forgiveness <laughs> beforehand. We're looking at Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. If not, text is in your order of worship. I say to you, hear the word of God. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would, um, you would come and uh, open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray for myself that you would give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. I pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding, and in my mouth, and in my speaking. In Jesus' name, we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. So the question this morning, and I had a cool animation for it, is if, if you were able to build a house, if someone said, you know, we're going to give you the money, and you can build a house anywhere in the world you want to, would you choose to build that house on a place called Washaway Beach? Let me read you this from, from the PBS, KCTS 9 here from December 5th, 2016. It's usually Malibu that makes the news. Every winter you see images of a storm that causes a multi-million dollar beach house to slip and slide. Closer to home, there's one town where entire blocks have disappeared under winter waves without fanfare. It's called North Cove, Washington. Haven't heard of it? That's because much of the community, the post office, the school, the Grange Hall, the clam cannery are gone gobbled up by the hungry Pacific Ocean. If you've heard of this place, you may know the town by its nickname, Washaway Beach. Now, I remember when we moved to Washington, and there were some things that were odd to me, like Birkenstocks with socks, <laughs> or the fact that knowing that umbrellas are a sign of weakness. That, I got all that eventually, but I remember watching TV one night 
and just being incredulous because it's like, you know, there was a, it got my attention because it's an Amy Allen on the scene, and that's my sister's name. And I'm like, wow, okay, I'm going to watch this. And she was, you know how they are people at the beach, the reporters like standing in the hurricane, and she's standing in, in this storm, and she said, families tonight are mourning the fact that they are losing their home. And she introduces this, hus- this father and daughter, and they're crying and she says, tell us what's, your, what's going on. He said, we moved this house stick by stick here to this beach, and now we're about to lose it all. And she was acting as if like that was surprising because it was a story about Washaway Beach. In, in other words, why are we watching a news report about a house that's being washed away from a beach named Washaway Beach? What you see in that, that news story, what you see here in some ways is, is one of the immutable laws of the universe. And that one of the immutable laws of the universe is whatever you sow, you reap. So in, in other words, if you build your house on a place called Washaway Beach, you can probably expect it's going to wash away. If you, if you sow, like, for, for example, if you spend from ages of 30 to the ages of 50 eating nothing but donuts, what you will reap is being a 50-year-old donut. That's what you will look like. In fact, th- this, this law of sowing and reaping is so immutable, and it's so big, and it permeates so much, there is a whole book of the Bible dedicated to it. You know what that is? Proverbs. The whole book of Proverbs is basically about sowing and reaping. Whatever you sow, in other words, if you you sow orange seeds, you're going to grow oranges. If you you sow bad things, you're going to reap bad things, right? So in the book of Proverbs, it has statements like, raise up a child in the way she should go, and when she's old, she will not depart from it, right? Generally speaking, if you raise a child right, when they're old, they'll be decent human beings as adults. It has a lot to talk about sexuality and adultery. It has a lot to talk about the way we use our money, right? If you sow well, you reap well. If you sow poorly, you reap poorly. And so it's interesting toward the end of this book of Galatians where Paul has talked about nothing but grace. I mean, it's grace, 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 grace. Remember, Paul basically came in and preached grace and people came behind him and said, well, grace is cool, Trusting Jesus is cool, but you should probably get circumcised just to be sure. Or you should probably follow these laws just to be sure. And, and Paul says, absolutely not. He says, absolutely not. That the gospel is nothing but faith in Jesus alone. That's how we're saved from our sins. Now, in spite of the fact that the gospel is all about grace and we're forgiven by our, from our sins by faith alone, Paul says at the end of this letter, there are still consequences to our behavior. There are negative consequences for negative behavior, and there are positive consequences for positive behaviors. And what basically he does here is he gives three areas of applications when it comes to this law of sowing and reaping, or this law of cultivation, however you want to put it. And what took me so much time to think through was was not just how to apply it to you, uh, but the fact that the three areas that he talks about with regard to applying this law of sowing and reaping. The first is pastors. How do you treat your pastor? Right now, think about, that's, that could be an awkward thing to have to preach about if you're the pastor. But we're going to try this morning. 
So he's going to apply this law of sowing and reaping to pastors. He's going to tell them how to apply it to themselves. And finally, he's going to encourage them to apply it to others. In fact, don't give up applying it to others. So let's look at the the first thing he says here when it comes to this law of of sowing and reaping. He says in verse 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Verse 7 is important. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So that's sort of the center of this passage. And verse 6 is interesting because a lot of people don't know what to do with it. Because some scholars say it should go with what came before. Because remember last week, the last thing that Paul said, verse 4, he says, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and in his neighbor for each one will have to bear his own load. And then he says, let the one who, who is taught share with the one who teaches. And some people think what they're saying is that Paul says, for each one will have to bear his own load, but, 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 but wait, wait, except the pastor. Y'all need to take care of the pastor. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about, because really in the context there, when he's talking about their, your own load, it's more having to do with everyone has their own cross to bear. And so I think it, it doesn't go with that way. And so should it go with the next part? And so there he says, let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And then verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. And so the the question is, is how does this apply and how does this work, what does this have to do, if anything, with the law of sowing and reaping, right? Sowing good things, reaping good things, sowing bad things, uh, reaping bad things. Well, first of all, let me lay out a little precedent here when Paul says, uh, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Jesus sort of started this precedent. Remember in Luke chapter 10? Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends his disciples out two by two, and he says, whenever you go someplace to preach, whenever you go someplace to, to bring the gospel, the people there ought to support you. And he says, and if they won't support you, then leave. Then go to, go to some other place where they will support you. Paul talks about this all over his letters. Let me, let me just read you one place in uh, 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, he says, 2 Corinthians 9, in verse 11, or verse 10 in chapter 9, he says, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It is written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing his crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, he's talking to the Corinthians, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Later on in verse 14, he says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Okay, so, so Paul's talked about this before. Why is he bringing it up here, and what's it have to do with sowing and, and reaping? And basically, um, I think at the end of the day, your spiritual welfare, in some ways, is contingent upon how you treat your pastors. In other words, if someone is responsible for feeding you, and you kill that person, well, you're going to starve, right? And so, in fact, Charles Spurgeon, when he wrote about this passage, says um, he said he thinks there are so many starving Christians because there are so many starving pastors. Now, by the way, your pastors aren't starving here. In fact, our church has historically been very generous to pastors. 
And so the, if, if your church is very generous to your pastors, and on one hand, then this, you're supposed to talk about this. What do you talk about? And I thought I would actually talk about the negative side for a little bit. In, in other words, if, you're, if, if it's clear, it says take care of your pastors. You know, if you remember in the Westminster Larger Catechism, which I know you all do, in chapter, in question 99, when we talk about the Ten Commandments, it gives us all these rules for interpreting God's commandments. And one of the rules, it says that whenever God commands something, the opposite of that thing is forbidden. And whenever God forbids something, the opposite of that thing is commanded, right? And so if God forbids stealing, what's the opposite of stealing, right? It's being generous. Or if God uh, forbids murder, what's the opposite of murder? It's, it's protecting innocent life. And so if God commands you, through, through Paul here, to take care of your, your pastors and teachers, those in authority, what's the, what's the opposite of that that would be forbidden? Honestly, th- these are some of the things I've, I struggle with. The, the, the opposite of that is don't abuse them. Don't seek to harm them. In our church, I, I can't say, our church right now is extremely healthy, but there was a time in our church when it was pretty tough. Like for example, death threats aren't cool, right? Like a negative application here, not cool. It's happened over the years. In fact, throughout the United States, many of you know I'm, I'm working on my, hopefully finishing February, pray for me, my uh, doctoral thesis is on uh, stopping deadly force events in houses of worship. And what's interesting is every week almost, pastors are killed. People get angry, and they think, well, the pastor, I'm going to transfer all my anger to him and kill him. So a good rule of thumb is <laughs> don't abuse or harm your pastors, right? Paul says take care of them. You know, it's, it's interesting. I used to work with Eli Lilly, many of you know, and you become friends. I worked with psychiatrists, and I became friends with a lot of psychiatrists and a lot of nurse practitioners who were psychiatrists. And over time, we'd, I'd learn about them, and they would inevitably um, often would say that they didn't go to church or they, they weren't religious. And then I would eventually find out that an inordinate number of them, compared to other people that I know, were former pastor's children. So think about that. A lot of psychiatrists and psychiatric nurse practitioners were former pastor's children. And as I became friends with them, I'd say, so why did you give up on church? And they would inevitably say, if you knew what the church did to my father, you wouldn't even ask. And of course, I wanted to say, but I didn't, wow, the reason I'm working for Eli Lilly is because what the church did to my children's father. <laughs> but I didn't. Because the, 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 I have to believe the gospel too. You see, on one hand, people are sinners and they're going to treat pastors are going to treat a lot of people poorly. On the other hand, pastors are responsible for believing the gospel too. Pastors are responsible for not quitting as well. Pastors are the ones for actually standing up and confronting sin sometimes rather than than not. And so how do you, so the the negative is, I hope obvious, don't be abusive, don't don't, uh, harm your pastor. What's the positive outwork and how how do you actually take care of your pastor? Google it. That's all I'm going to say about that. Look it up on the Google, 
right? Because it would be easy for me to stand up and say, oh, you ought to do this, you ought to do this. Samuel was talking about taking his wife on a cruise, you know, if you could do that. All these kind of things. Every pastor is different. And if you look up on the Google, how do you care for your pastor? There will be more hits than you will be able to read in one afternoon. And so I just encourage you to, to do that. We're trying to care for you. Paul says to share with the, the, one who, who, the, the one who's taught you, share with the one who teaches. That's all I'm going to say about that, except to say, um, to the extent that people take care of the, the, the pastors, is, the, is, the, is what you're going to reap from them. In other words, you, you can't just reap, 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 and then wonder, why is this guy dying? In our case, why is this it's, it's two men? And so just remember that at some level, your spiritual life is, is, is attached to the spiritual health of your pastors. So Paul goes from there to, to talking about yourself. He's, okay, take care of your pastors, but you also need to take care of yourself. In fact, I was going to start there. That was one of the things I was grappling with. So I start with self and work down and do pastors at the end. Notice what he says next. I'm going to read verse 7 again. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For if one sows to his own flesh, from the flesh, he will from the flesh reap corruption. And the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so the first thing Paul says there, notice he says, God is not mocked. He says, do not be deceived, don't fool yourself, God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Now what Paul's talking about there, he's not, he's not talking about someone who teases God, who mocks God, like, you know, so, so it, it's, it's interesting, Sammy and I have, have had a great, he's been here since August, and, and we've gotten along exceedingly well, wouldn't you say, and I'd say a, a large part, that's because we're both mockers. Right? We leave our doors open because it just makes mocking the other guy easier when you walk by. This, that isn't what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about cracking jokes about your, your co-pastor's socks or something. What he's talking about is the fact that God is not fooled or he's not easily fooled. Remember, this whole letter is about self-righteousness and Paul sort of cutting through all the things that people do to try and make themselves acceptable to God outside of the gospel of Jesus. And Paul says, do not be deceived. You are not fooling anybody. You're not fooling anybody with all of your goodness and all your good works and, and, and all of your, your, your Bible reading and, and how people in the church think you're just a stellar a member of the community, he says, if you sow corruption, you will reap corruption. In other words, we can fool other people, but we can't fool God. I love the children's catechism. When our kids were little, we used children's catechism. And we have a video somewhere of our oldest daughter where I would say, Abby, can you see God? And the answer to that question is no, but he sees me. That's more true than we know. That's what Paul is saying here. That you might be able to fool everyone else in the world about your spiritual state and about who, who, what's going on in your life, but you cannot fool God. That you can look good on the outside, but if you sow corruption, and by the way, he, he says if you sow to the flesh, and remember the works of the flesh were all the, the immoral things that he talked about in chapter 5. He says if you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. And the, the word corruption there is basically 
death and decomposition. In other words, you reap death when you sow to the flesh. Notice that eventually our actions begin to, we tend to think, that, you know, and it says in the Bible, as a man thinks, so he acts, right? So as long as I put good stuff in my head, I'm going to act correctly, we think. Well, what Paul is saying here is what theologians have also discovered from other, other parts of the Bible is that on one hand, the way we think determines how we act, but eventually the way we act determines how we think. In other words, if you, the, the things that we do ultimately become habits, and those habits begin to rewire us. In fact, when I, again, when I used to work for Lilly, I sold a drug that was for diabetic neuropathic pain. And one of the, the challenges to neuropathic pain is just this. If you don't catch it in time, the brain's, neuropathic pains are like pins and needles on the bottom of your feet and all these kinds of things, is the brain starts to, to rewire itself in order to... to come along to, to get in line with the body. In other words, the brain begins to perceive that the pain that a person has in their feet or hands is actually normal, that the way things are supposed to be. And the same thing happens in our spiritual life. That, the, that when we, we act over and over in ways that are sowing to the flesh, like w- whether it's pornography or anything else like that, that begins to actually rewire our brain to, to, do, to want to do that thing, to think that that thing is normal rather than the, the things that Paul talks about when he talks about um, sowing to the Spirit. And, and it is, you know, when we talk about sowing to the flesh, a lot of times, it, most of us, I tend to think, well, what's, what's an easy application of that? Well, it's something sexual, right? Or some, you know, don't watch certain movies or don't look at porn. But remember that list of things in chapter 5? It includes things like gossip. In other words, can gossip rewire your brain? You know, it's interesting. I did it. I did. I looked up on the Google yesterday before I was looking up how to care for your pastor. I was looking up. I just looked up is gossip addictive. Give me hits there were for the the question is gossip addictive. Almost two million. Gossip is addictive because you know I I don't know about you but to me gossip feels good. It's like. It's like when you got a bad itch and you scratch it, and it's like, whoa, that's great. But it's wrong. Ultimately, it sows corruption. Ultimately, it sows death. So on the one hand, we, we, if we sow to the flesh, the, if, we, if we give our time to those things which are f- fleshly, we will reap corruption. But Paul also says, I mean, positively speaking, he says if we... So to the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now, is Paul, what is Paul, when Paul talks about sowing to the Spirit, remember the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, patience, peace, kindness, gentleness, and self-control, those things? Paul says when we sow those things, we reap eternal life. Now, is Paul saying we earn our salvation? In, in other words, he's saying after all this grace that he's preached, really, if you just do these things, you'll, you'll, if you sow these things, things, good things, you'll reap eternal life. And the answer is, is absolutely not. That's not what he's saying at all. And the, the reason we know that is because the nature of what eternal life means. You see, on one hand, you have to understand something first. You have to understand there is one loophole in this immutable law of the universe about reaping and sowing. 
And what's the loophole? What, what's the exception to the law of reaping and sowing? And it's just this. It's the gospel of Jesus. Right? What the gospel says is that you and I sow corruption, you and I sow sin, you and I sow uh, evil, we sow whatever it is that's bad, and Jesus reaps the consequences. That's what happens at the cross. We have spent our life sowing sin, sinful actions, who we are. Jesus at the cross reaps the, the punishment for our actions. Conversely, Jesus spent his whole life. Remember Acts chapter 9 says Jesus went around doing good. Jesus never sinned once. Jesus sowed to the Spirit. And when he goes to the cross, we reap what Jesus has sowed. If you don't understand that, then what comes next doesn't matter. Right? If you don't understand that the fact that there is a loophole, that all of your sin, ultimately, Jesus has taken, that Jesus has reaped it on the cross, the punishment, the curse, all of that, and he has given you what he has, we reap what he has sown. And so when Paul says at the end here that if you sow to the Spirit, you reap eternal life, what does he mean? Well, it, it, in, the, in the Gospel of John here, when Paul, they use the term eternal life, it means that it's the word um, aeone, eon, or time frame, zoe, life. And, and basically that's the language that means the age of the life to come. And what Paul is saying here is not like just if you do these things, you're going to get to live with Jesus forever. You get to live with Jesus forever because Jesus took away your sins on the cross. What eternal life means is the life of the age to come, that, that all these things, these fruit of the Spirit, the more we sow them now, the more we reap them now. In other words, if you want to understand, if you want to know what heaven feels like, if you want to experience what heaven feels like, sow to the Spirit. The more we sow to the Spirit, the more we will reap eternal life, the life of the age to come right now. And so Paul says that, that, that's what he means by eternal life. It's a moving on. For, so going from pastors to self to those outside or to others, notice what he says, verse 9. He says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. So what's he getting at here? So verse 9, he says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we shall reap. So the word good there, there's two different words he uses for good in this passage. The word good there is the word kalon in Greek, and it basically means the, the, the good or the true and the, or the beautiful, it, it's, some, it's sort of the, this big concept of good. And basically, I'm going to translate it as the right thing, right? The, the thing that ought to be done, the, the, the archetypal thing. And so he says, Didn't it, let us not grow weary of doing the right thing, for in due season we shall reap if we do not give up. Now, it's interesting because we, we tend to think, we tend to let ourselves off the hook a lot of times, I think. Because we think, I mean, you hear all the time, well, we're a microwave culture. People have to have things immediately. You know, you have to have a fast internet connection. You have to do all this. And so it's harder for us. Well, I don't know what the Galatians were going through. But whatever they were going through, the Apostle Paul felt like he needed to tell them, don't give up. Like, be a little bit more patient with what's happening here. He says, because in due time, you will reap. If you're doing the right thing, you will reap if you don't quit. Right? If... if if you do not give up. In other words, if you're in the middle of doing something and you give up, it's definitely not going to happen. 
The only way you can know if what you're investing in is going to come to fruition is if you actually complete it. I remember when I, when I got out of the Army in 1988, and the, I went straight from being a ranger in the Army to being an intern at a Presbyterian church. And so there was a little bit of like, oh, this is a little different. And I think they did it. They, they did me a favor, ultimately. And so I became the, the intern for student ministries. It was huge student ministries. And every of the interns was assigned a mentor that they were to meet with weekly. And the mentor was to instruct them spiritually and all this kind of stuff. Well, my mentor that I was assigned was Dr. Duke. Dr. Duke had been the pastor emeritus of that church for 30 years. Think about that. He worked through retirement, which I'm guessing 65, and then he'd been the emeritus pastor, which means he just had an office in the church for 30 years. So he's well into his 90s. And he never looked anyone, including me, in the eye. And I don't, I don't mean like he was sheepish. I mean just the opposite. When we had our meetings, he was always reading a book, and he'd be sitting in his chair. So he's 95, let's say. He's reading a book. And he'd, sit, he'd look up a little bit. So tell me about your week. And I'd say, well, I took all these kids to camp this week. It was awesome. Like, like 12 of them became Christians. It was the greatest thing. And he said, well, we'll see. That's what we mean, Dr. Duke. He said, Tommy, I mean, you have to imagine. He's just looking behind. He's reading, I guess, while he's talking. He said, you can't know, not until 20 or 30 years from now, whether or not your ministry is successful. And I, I remember just feeling dejected, like, wow. But I never forgot that. And then about 20 years later, I got a phone call from one of the kids in that camp. And not only was he walking with Christ, but he had actually joined the army because of me. And he became a medic because I told him to become a medic. And then he became a doctor because of that. And he, so here he is, a, he's, a, he's a great medical doctor walking with Christ. And he called me. And I, he, to this day, he and I are, are best friends. But I didn't know for 20 years that it had actually taken. And a lot of other kids, remember I came in all excited, like 12 kids became Christians. I have no idea what happened to them. I hope they're walking with Christ. I know some of them aren't. But I know one of them is, is bearing lots of fruit. You see, we can't know what God is doing in our lives with every little thing that happens immediately. We want that. We want to see that happen in church sometimes. We want to sort of, the, 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 if, if you're a pastor, you get emails every day that are basically what amount to get-rich-quick schemes for how to grow your church. And at the end of the day, what we are called to do is preach the gospel, minister the gospel, live out the gospel, and in due time, we will reap as long as we don't give up. So um, um, that, that's one side of it. And then notice what he says in verse 10. He says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. So when he says, as we have opportunity, another way you could translate that is to say, while there is still time. In, in other words, all of us are given limited time in this world to, to do something, to, to, to make a mark for the gospel, to, to, to do whatever. He says, while we still have time, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. And in Greek and, and Latin, things, word order matters. And Paul says, first, let us do, do good to everyone. And then he said, especially those who are in the household of faith. 
And I think the reason he does that is because in my experience, if he had said, let us do good to those in the household of faith and then to everyone else, I think if he didn't put, it, if he, if he didn't put the word order the way he did, most of us in the household of faith would never get to the second part. And practically speaking, that's how it is in, in most churches, including ours sometimes. It's easy to take care of people inside. Paul says we are to do good for everybody. And it's amazing how, how incredulous the world is when they see that happen. I don't know if I told to mention to the church, it was probably a month or two ago, that I just randomly, I, I talked to my sister who's a police officer, and I said, if we're going to bless the police, what should, how would I do that? And she just said, take them 10 pizzas on a Tuesday morning at about 11.15, and you'll be, you'll be amazed. I'm like, that's it. Just take them pizzas. And I did it. I, took, I walked into the police station with 10 pizzas. It was pretty interesting because there was a big line of people to get through security. And they, buzzed the, and they saw me coming with the pizzas and the lady just opened the door and waved me through. <laughs> I could have had anything in those boxes. She, <laughs> and I took them back and I gave one of the assistant chiefs. I said, hey, I'm just pastor at New Hope and we just want to be a blessing to you guys. Within a week, I got a long email from the assistant chief I got an email from the, the head of SWAT who said, anything you guys ever need, let me know. I got a handwritten note from the chief of police. Ten pizzas, that's all it cost. Just by doing one little bit of good. We're getting ready to do the harvest party. You know why we do the harvest party? It's not just so your kids don't have to trick or treat. It's so that we can be a blessing to those outside of our church. And so what is a way you can do good, right? Deb, I didn't know I was going to say this. Remember I told you I didn't know a lot of things I was going to say this morning. Um, have you signed up to help with the harvest party? It's an easy way for you to do, do, take one night to be a blessing to all the people in the neighborhood. Have you invited your neighbors who don't know Jesus to the harvest party? It's an easy way, a fun way for you to do good with them. So let me close with this. Because the question I'd be asking about this time if I were you is like, how am I supposed to pull this off? Right? It, it, it's one thing. It, it, in other words, it's easy to stand up here and say, if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. Sow to the Spirit, you'll, you'll reap eternal life. Just go out there and sow to the Spirit. Have a nice day. If it was me, I'd say, I need a little bit more than that because that almost sounds like just another legalism. Do the right thing and the right thing will happen. Let me close with this. Let me tell you how Abraham did it. Romans chapter 4, verse 18. Remember the story of Abraham. Abraham was, God came to him and he called him in Ur of Chaldees. And, and we know from Genesis 11 that Abraham, he had a wife named Sarah who was barren. And God came to him and said, you're going to be the, the father of many nations. You're going to be a blessing to all the families on the earth. You're going to get this land. You're going to get all these things. And then he didn't show up for about 20 years. And then he came to him and talked to him again and, and reminded him of the promise and, and made a covenant with him. And then God left and he didn't show up for another 20 years or so. So to imagine, like, I, you know, I need like affirmation sort of on an on a hourly basis. Imagine if God spoke to you every 20 years or so and said, you got to trust me. I'm going to do a great thing in your life. See you in 20 years. How did Abraham deal with that? How did Abraham continue to do good in the context of what seemed like God's silence? Here's what it says in verse 18. It says, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. 
as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. In other words, instead of constantly contemplating his circumstances and contemplating uh, how hard things were, contemplating what was going on, he contemplated the promise of God and that God was able to do what he had promised. That's what you and I ought to be doing. Do you want to, do you want to sow more good? Do you want to sow to the Spirit more? Well, it's contemplate the promise of God more. Ask yourself, how faithful has Jesus been to me? How faithful has he promised to be to me in the future? And because of that, I can do anything now. Because of that, I can actually make a difference in the world now. You know, back in the, the 1980s, early 80s, just prior to that in Baltimore and Sandtown, basically the, the Sandtown was one of the most blighted communities in the United States. It was almost it was completely African-American. There had been riots. The schools were horrible. Everything was bad. The government didn't know what to do with Sandtown in Baltimore. And in the early 80s, imagine this. If you were God and you looked down and said, okay, there's a blighted neighborhood. It's, it's African-American. The schools are horrible. What, who, who shall I send? If it was me, I'd say, well, let's find a brilliant, charismatic black man who has a background in education. Something. And that's not who God picked. Imagine God in a big crowd of people, you know, white people, black people, Hispanic people, and, and he says, I need to send someone to Sandtown, someone who can make a difference in this community that the government has given up on. And people are raising their hands, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. And God says, hey, you, you, you in the back there, white guy. Presbyterian, yep, yep. Yep, the guy who can't even raise his hand because he's a quadriplegic. You, you're the one I'm sending. A guy named Alan Tibbles. In other words, in the early 80s, God sent a white Presbyterian quadriplegic into the most blighted community in the United States to make a difference for the gospel. And 20 years later, when he died, the, the, the governor made a statement. The, the Baltimore Sun wrote a front-page article about how God, they didn't say God, but how this man had been used to completely change this community. He would have never been the one we picked. He wouldn't have been the one I picked. And yet God used him because he simply went and he didn't give up. Where is it that God wants to use you? Where is it that, that, that you think, oh, he can never do something with me? That might be the exact place that he wants to use you. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray this morning that you would just, um, you would first of all apply the gospel to our hearts, but then you would empower us to live out the gospel in our sowing and in our reaping. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen.